Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, I want to tell you one reason, one way you can know that Jesus loves you. He spanked you. What? What did you say, Bob? One way you can know that Jesus loves you is he spanked you. Have you ever been in the grocery store and seen some holy terror, unholy terror, pulling cereal boxes out of the, off the shelves as his poor mother's trying to wheel him in the cart and doing all that? Have you ever felt the impulse to say, ma'am, would you let me spank your child? Well, I hope you've never done that. That's, that's the response of a fool, much less to grab the child and spank the child. I don't know whether you'd be in which side of State Line Avenue you'd go to jail. But anyhow, how do you know that Jesus loves you? Does he spank you from time to time? And that's really what the Bible is teaching us. And I think it's striking when we look at the church of Laodicea. The church of Laodicea we tend to think of as the worst of the seven churches. Of course, the church of Laodicea has been around in every era of the church. The church at Laodicea didn't have vile heresies like some of the churches. The church at Laodicea was simply self-satisfied. We got everything we need. We, we got enough money. We got enough health. We've got enough freedom. The church at Laodicea. The church at Laodicea reminds me in many ways of the modern Western church, particularly in the United States. It's simply a church that doesn't have that deep sense, Lord, I need you. Lord, help me. If you don't help me, Lord, what am I going to do? The church at Laodicea was simply a church that was complacent. They weren't cold, but neither were they hot. They were lukewarm. And that's why Jesus said, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. But not everybody in the church of Laodicea was lukewarm. There were true believers there. And Jesus gives us a word, no matter how bad our denomination or local church might be. And that word is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's not an evangelistic invitation, though it's used that way many times. That's an invitation to somebody inside the church to say, let's let Jesus in this church. You got the picture? In other words, here is this indifferent church that's just lukewarm and nauseatingly lukewarm at that. And he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking. Let me in my church, please. Can you imagine Jesus being locked out of the church? In Laodicea, he was. Nobody wanted Jesus. You know, I'm struck. Every funeral sermon I've ever preached, I've had a terrible backlash over. Wow. Every single one. Going back to Wichita, Kansas, when I had a, a dear friend's wife die in childbirth. And after I preached her funeral... All of the relatives in Anthony, Kansas, the people there who grew up with this woman were horrified at the things I said. You know why? Because I've always preached this. You ain't going to heaven by how you've lived. You're not good enough to go to heaven. The only way you're going to heaven is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you wouldn't believe the reactions I've gotten to that sermon over the years. Wow. 
over and over again. Why? Because the American church, by and large, has forgotten the message of the gospel. It's amazing to me that gospel preachers say nonsense like the following. The worst sermon I ever sat through, and I had to sit through it, I would have gotten up and walked out, but I was on the platform, and it was, I'll say it, it was Southern Baptist Church. And I'm not against Southern Baptists. In fact, tonight I'm going to assist as my grandson, whom you all know, who's been with us many times, is immersed in a Southern Baptist church. Do I believe in second baptisms? No. Do I believe it's necessary? No. But I'm supporting my grandson. I'm not opposed to Southern Baptists. But I attended the funeral of a friend of mine's mother, and I read the scripture and had prayer. And I got to tell you what that preacher said. I'll have to make up her name. Let's see. Ms. Bodine, Jethro Bodine, okay. I always use Beverly Hillbilly characters because most people don't have their names. That preacher, after I'd read the scripture and prayed, got up in the pulpit and he said, Ms. So-and-so, Ms. Bodine was such a wonderful person. She taught Sunday school. She was this, she was that. And I believe that when Ms. Bodine entered heaven, the Lord God got up out of his office thrown out of respect. What do you call preaching like that? Preaching that sends people to hell. Wow. I preached a funeral sermon this week. Wow. Well, did I get the backlash? All I'm saying is the American church is not used to the gospel. The American church is used to, even, even when godly Christians, uh, people who otherwise are bold to share their faith, get up and preach a funeral sermon, they leave everybody there with the impression that this person is in heaven because they lived a good life. That is so foreign to the message of the Bible. Nobody's in heaven because they deserve to be there. Everybody who's in hell deserves to be there. When we go to heaven, we go there on the coattails of Jesus. If we're not united to Jesus, we've got no hope. I don't care how good we are. I don't care how many times we've quit drinking, turned over a new leaf, walked an aisle, prayed the sinner's prayer, done this, done that, shake the preacher's hand, decided to quit smoking. All of those things that people sometimes equate with, this is to become a Christian. You know what is to become a Christian? It's to give up on yourself. And it's to cast yourself on God's mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the American church today is a Laodicean church. And Jesus is saying, and I'm not saying that's true of every congregation. I'm, I'm not even saying that's true here. I think that by and large, you people want to hear the Bible. By and large, not everybody. A lot of people, it's, it's like the time I was preaching my aunt's funeral. And um, she died at 102 and a half, and that's why I have a nice house to live in. And because uh, I couldn't afford to have a home of my own. And my first cousin was sitting right down there in the Presbyterian Church in Bennisville, South Carolina. And I went on about my aunt, and I said, you know, Inez, Inez love fried chicken. And she used to like to have a glass of sherry with her lunch. And she had a gin tonic, 
uh, before supper. And she was very overweight. <laughs> and then I said, I wonder why Inez lived so long, 102 and a half. And this is what I said. She didn't have any bitterness towards anybody. She had no resentment towards anybody. My first cousin sitting right down there with her brother wouldn't speak to her sister back uh, eight pews back. Guess what she did when I started talking about unforgiveness and bitterness. Remember when we pray the Lord's Prayer reminded of this. Forgive us our debt says we forgive our debtors. If you got resentment can you expect God to forgive your sin? So when I'm preaching, you know what she did? She, she did what saying sick them to a dog does to a dog. This is what she did. She kept giving the chop right across her neck. Cut it out. I can't stand it. I guarantee you it was torture for her. So what I'm saying is this. The American church is a church where the gospel is foreign because the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he rose again salvation is by grace alone received by faith alone in Christ alone but saving faith is never alone we're not saved by the never alone part we're saved by the faith but the faith is never alone there's a changed life I remember another the controversial sermon I preached. There was a postman who had been shot in carrying out his duty. Somebody was mad at a lawyer over a settlement. Went in there to kill the lawyer and was successful. And in the process, killed the local postman. And so his widow asked me to preach his funeral. It was a huge funeral. Really huge funerals mean that they couldn't be preached in the church I used to pastor. So we preached in the largest Baptist church in Alexandria. And here was my line. So you know, what God expects is something you cannot do. And that is that you have got to ask Jesus to give you the help to forgive the person that did this to your loved one. Oh, my goodness. What? I've got to forgive the man that murdered my husband, mother, uh, murdered my daddy. Well, it doesn't happen overnight. And it's never complete in this life. But you can't have a hands-off policy and say, I'll never forgive that person. If you persist in that, you're going to go to hell. Wow. If you persist in it. If you persist in it. So saving faith is always accompanied by other things, forgiving other people. It takes time. I remember preaching the funeral of a young man who was murdered in Atlanta, Georgia. And I went out and reached out to his mom and dad who were living in Alexandria at the time. I even flew over there to Atlanta to be with them during the trial of the man that murdered their son. But I said to them in private and especially in private, I said, this is not going to be easy. It may take you your whole life. But you've got to ask Jesus to help you forgive the man that murdered your son. Wow, that's, that's strange stuff. People are not used to that. People are not used to hearing a message that 
pulls the rug of self-righteousness out from under their feet on the one hand and then lays on them a demand of obedience they cannot meet. See, when you really understand the law, you got to understand the gospel because the law, if you really understand it, nails you and nails me to the wall and we can't get down without Jesus. The law's demands are so strict, so absolute, so condemning that no human being who has ever walked on our earth except the Lord Jesus, the God-man, ever kept the law. Because the law, when you look at the 10th commandment, condemns us all. Because the law deals with an attitude of the heart. What is the standard of the Christian life? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. As he obeyed the law of God in his human nature and practiced that. Imagine what hell Jesus went through on earth as he's beaten with a cat of nine tails where those whips had pieces of bone and metal in them and every time that whip got his back and they jerked it back they jerked out chunks of meat. Imagine what it felt like to be crowned with a crown of thorns. Imagine what it's like to be stripped naked. Imagine what it's like to be mocked, to be spat at. Imagine what it's like to hang on a cross as your life is ebbing away and you're mocked by everybody around, even the two thieves, but at the last minute, one thief repented. And you know, a deathbed conversion is good enough. And he went to be with Jesus. But what are Jesus' words regarding the people who tortured him and tormented him and put him through hell? Is it appropriate to say that that he had hell on earth? Absolutely, because Jesus went to hell in what he suffered. You and I don't have to go there. Well, I'm saying that the Laodicean church of, of the modern world is a stranger to the preaching of the law. Because the modern Laodicean church has an easy to keep law. We don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. People reduce the law down to some silly platitudes. If we really understand it, we realize that we have no hope except the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why... The preaching of the law will always lead to the preaching of the gospel. And the preaching of the gospel is, you're hopeless, you're hellbound. I'll never forget another sermon I did. This young man had called me the night of a shootout in Alexandria, which ended up wiping out the SWAT team of the, of the police department in Alexandria, and he wanted to talk to me. And he asked me if I'd ride with him in his patrol car that night. And at the very end, he said to me, he said, Mr. Bob, he said, how can I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die? And that night, he prayed to receive Christ. He put his trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The following week, he told that decision to one of his fellow workers He was a city marshal, an assistant city marshal. Six weeks later, he was killed in the line of duty. And I had his funeral. And again, it was in the large Baptist church. And we had police from all over the state there. And it so happened we were involved in the Boy Scouts together. At that time, I was president of the Attackapaw Council. And he was the head of the Order of the Arrow. 
And I preached in my scout uniform, and the Boy Scouts were his honor guard, and his pallbearers were officers in the Order of the Era. You know what I did? I said, Glenn was a wonderful young man. I don't know of a finer young man that I've ever met. And I described all the virtues he had. Uh, he married a, a, a young lady from the church I served. And he had just had a second child born. And I went on and on and on. And then I gave a pregnant pause. The pregnant pause is just before the water breaks. And in this case, it was to say, but Glenn was not good enough to go to heaven. And people, there were audible gasps. Audible gasps. People never heard such a thing. And then I told them he was in heaven. And why he was in heaven? He's in heaven because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Lord Jesus Christ died for Glenn's sins on the cross. Because he was buried. Because he rose again the third day. And he gave Glenn the gift of repentance and faith. And Glenn put his trust in Christ. And he's in heaven. And I could preach with absolute assurance that Glenn was in heaven. But I'm going to tell you. The Laodicean church has no use for that message. They don't want to hear the law of God. They don't want to hear the standards of a holy God that don't just nail us to the, to the wall in condemnation because we, we weren't the guy that went into the liquor store with a 22 Saturday night special and shot and killed the clerk. God, I understand. I remember preaching a sermon on that one day. And this man actually literally ducked <laughs> when I pointed that 22. It wasn't a 22. It was just me pretending to have a 22. And I said, you're just as guilty if you've had hatred in your heart. Or Jesus, what he said about the seventh commandment. People sit there and say, well, I've never committed adultery. Oh, yes, you have. Oh, yes, you have. There's none righteous, no, not one. And the purpose of the law of God is to what? Strip away the rags of our own self-righteousness so that we might be clothed with the impeccable, unimpeachable robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the Laodicean church has no use for it. But guess what, dear ones? I don't care how liberal, how non-gospel preaching a church may be, if you're in it, before you cast, uh, wipe the dust off your feet, why don't you try answering the door and saying, Jesus, would you come into this church? And say, I want to say this, the best churches on earth are imperfect. There's not a church in the world that doesn't need a fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit and Holy Spirit power. And you know what? You can change the world as God uses you to change the church. Now, I want to wrap this up with where I want to go next week. And that is, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. Because I find this story, uh, which is an absolutely true story, an amazing story. If you were to describe the, great, the two greatest men of the Old Testament... Who were the two greatest men of the Old Testament? Moses and who? 
Nope, David sure did mess up. He, he was a murderer and an adulterer and tried to get people drunk. Who met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Elijah. Elijah, my God is Yahweh. Elijah meets with Jesus. He's the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But I want you to see something because it gives us perspective. Elijah was a member of a liberal church. What? No, if you really look at 1 Kings 17 for a moment, page 555, it says now in verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine. East of the Jordan, you will drink from the brook I have ordered there, and, and, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. Now look at verse 6. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. I want you to just ponder that for a moment. What was the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel began in apostasy because King Jeroboam I began to be afraid that people would travel from Israel down to Jerusalem to the temple and worship there and he would lose his kingdom. And so he decided to set up his own religion. He made golden calves and he said to Israel, these are your gods. You know, it's interesting. He did what, what Aaron did. Aaron didn't create a, uh, a, a, an idle unsense of a false god. He said, this is Yahweh. This is the Lord that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And that's what Jeroboam did. He worshiped God by means of three-dimensional objects. And he set up one in Bethel and one in Dan. And he appointed as pastors. Anybody want to be a pastor? No matter how crooked they were, no matter how much they were embezzling, shaking people down for money because it's the most effective con in the world is preacher con because nobody else can tell you, you know, Mr. So-and-so, I'm so worried about your wife. The Lord showed me that uh, she cannot get into heaven yet. You need, you need to give the Bob Vincent Evangelistic Association $10,000. And the Lord said, you, know, you ever heard anything like that? Well, anyhow... The northern kingdom is utterly corrupt. There was only one good king in the entire history of Israel, and he was the very last one, and he wasn't all that good. So they're the apostates. Their religion is corrupted and false. They're worse than any modernistic, Bible-rejecting denomination in America today. And where did the greatest prophet of the Old Testament arise from? Right up there. He's the one that's singled out, along with Moses the lawgiver, to represent the prophets. All the prophets are represented by Elijah. Now I want you to see one more thing and we're done. Have you ever read through the catalog of clean animals and nasty animals in, in the Old Testament, like Leviticus? They're nasty animals, like one of the animals that we talked about two weeks ago and again today mentioning is the bat. You don't eat bats, especially not in Wuhan. 
And so they're nasty animals. What is a nasty bird? You got an idea of a nasty bird? Crows, ravens, they're nasty. Why are they nasty? Because we have to dodge them on the highway sometimes. Because they're out there eating dead stuff. They like dead stuff. They like, they like that flavor like a nice aged cheese. They like that squirrel to have been kind of steaming in the sun. That's what they do. They're nasty. Now, now get this. God's concern is not correctness of ceremonies. That's why I'm willing to do what I'm going to do tonight with my grandson. God's focus, even in the Old Testament, on, is not on getting all the ceremonies right. Where did Elijah get his food from? From ravens. From ravens. And what kind of meat was it? Well, I guarantee you they didn't go to the butcher shop and get it. Well, let me say something. If God's blessing what the raven brings to you, no matter where he got it, even if it's a squashed almardilla in South Louisiana, God will use it to heal your body, strengthen your body, to keep you healthy and strong. And I'm going to leave you on that note because next week I want to try to answer the question, how do you know whether it's fatherly discipline from the Lord or God's judgment as he judges the whole world. Because there is judgment on the whole world. In fact, our world is being judged now. But God disciplines his own children for whom the Lord loves. He disciplines and spanks every child whom he receives. And so the church at Laodicea an indifferent church, not really bad, not really good. We got all we need. Jesus says, won't one of you let me in there so I can do something in this church? And amazingly, in the northern kingdom of Israel, God sends the greatest prophet of the entire Old Testament, Elijah the Tishbite who eats what the crows brought him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in a time when it seems we're being abandoned to craziness, not only in our nation, but among the nations of the earth. Lord, we thank you that if we will accept it, even food from a buzzard will take care of us and nourish us. Lord, we thank you for your promise of provision that you take care of your own. Even though we suffer along with the rest of the world, you cause your rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And Elijah certainly underwent deprivation and suffering and trial. But Lord, it was different for him because he was your child. You loved him. You set your love on him. And you caused the food that he ate he would eat even out of the mouth of a crow to be good for him. Lord, would you give us to trust you? Would you give us to trust you? Lord, in a world where there's so little trust, Lord, would you give us to trust you and to know that you will work all things together for our good. 
even when you spank us, because you spank your own children, and you abandon the children of the world to suffer eternally. Lord, thank you. Thank you for spanking us. May we profit from it. May we know that we're your children. May we know that you love us because you're intimately involved in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.